good to be with you. Starting to feel like this is kind of, uh, I'm on staff at this point. Uh, you know, I'm like here every three weeks, uh, it seems. But uh, man, good to, uh, good to be with you. So here's what I want to do. Let hope rise, this idea coming out of uh, Easter and what it really means. How do you actually go forward in your life with any kind of hope, with any kind of meaning, with any kind of purpose, answering the big question of life? So I want to read a passage to you for 1 Kings chapter 17, kind of the backdrop. Uh, And so all of this kind of flows out of Easter. So maybe some of you, you actually showed up for Easter and you've been exploring Christianity. We're glad you're here. That's what it's all about. I planted a church uh, in Vancouver nine years ago, and really the heart behind it was to reach people like you, skeptics, unchurched people, people who aren't sure about Christianity. And that was me growing up. And of course, Easter and everything that comes after, which is more my point today, uh, is actually super uh, central to everything that Christianity is. It's for evidential thinkers, especially because did it really happen? And if it really happened historically, uh, theologically, then what does it all mean for us? Which I think is really the point of what the New Testament goes on to talk about. It's not just about the fact that Jesus himself rose from the dead. That's really important. And and for evidential thinkers, that's what actually, when I was 18, 19 years old, and I was sitting in high school, and I didn't want anything to do but just smoke weed and party and hang out with girls and whatever, and a guy named Chris came up to me and talked to me about Jesus, I started exploring Christianity from an evidential basis. And I started realizing that the rise of the early church came about because this person, Jesus, really rose from the dead. And there was a group of people, Jewish people, who really would never have said that a man would become God. Uh, This is a group of people that went on to believe leave it, worship it, and even die for it. And like, if you wanted to just create that as a conspiracy, if you wanted to come up with that concept, there were better places to put that idea than within Judaism. There was lots of religions at the time that you could put the concept of a rising God. Uh, you know, all the, Ger- all the German mythologies that were out there. You know, the Marvel uh, movies, most of those movies, like Thor and all them, that's all based on mythology that already existed. I took my daughters to uh, Captain Marvel, uh, a few weeks ago. So I have three daughters, 12, 10, and eight. And, uh, and so I took the two older ones to Captain Marvel, who went, loved it, hashtag girl power. And, uh, and they were digging it, they were loving it. And so they were like, hey, I wanna do this. And so I went, we went home and they were raving about it. And then my youngest daughter, eight years old, little Bella, she's like, well, I wanna see it too, mommy. And so my wife looked at me and said, hey, should, you know, is it okay to take Bella to it? And I'm like, uh, yeah, of course. Like there's nothing inappropriate in it, it's all good. And my two older girls were like, yeah, let's do it, that's great. So we all got in the car and went and sat down and about, 20 minutes into the movie, I look over and my little Bella's like crunched up in her chair and she's like, like scared and she's freaking, she's covering her eyes. And then, and then my wife starts to do the kind of stuff that, you know, she starts giving me like her body language. Like she's, every time something bad happened on the screen, she'd like go like this and like look at me. And I'm like, oh man, this is not gonna be good for my marriage. And, uh, and then her and Bella left the actual theater. And, and, and I'm like, what? And I'm like texting, I'm like, are you okay? And she didn't reply, which is what you ladies do, all right? And it drives us crazy, all right? Because we're like, I don't know, do you hate me? Are you leaving? I don't understand what's happening. And so she lets me sit there for another two hours and say nothing and just stew in it. And then I come out, she's like, what are you doing? It was completely inappropriate. I'm like, what are you talking about, Bella? Like, oh, there's green men. And I'm like, what? And then my two oldest daughters are like, yeah, dad, that was inappropriate, all right? I'm like, what the? <laughs> What's wrong with these people, man? So anyways, 
The point is you had a whole other world right, that you could have put a story about a dying and rising God, about a God who shows up and does this crazy thing, but you, they did it within Judaism. And then you start to realize the historical reality of the fact that, man, people killed Jesus and then the theory is, no, 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 he didn't really die. He just kind of died, but then the Roman Empire took him off the cross and they just put him over here and then he wrote. And that, you know, but historically I started to look into that and realize if the Roman Empire knew how to do something, it was kill people. And they didn't tend to put guys on crosses. And I think he's dead. Get him off. And then he's just, ooh, I was close. Right? And then start running around. Hello, I have risen. I have risen indeed. Right? That's not actually a thing. Right? So you start to realize the historical reality of the resurrection that this actually matters. Now, with all of that backdrop, listen to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can just listen to it. Here's a story, and then I'll make some comments on it. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. So here's Elijah, and there's a woman who has put Elijah up in her house, and her son dies. His illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring, <clears throat> to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to God, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord, <clears throat> the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So here's the backdrop to that idea. What we have to understand about all of what we're talking about is sometimes we hone in on the resurrection of Jesus. And we talk about that and we defend that and we focus on that. But the reality is the rest of the New Testament actually moves on from that. It's like Michelangelo back in the day when he was writing to all of the, his art, the artist, not the Ninja Turtle, was writing to, he was writing, some of you are like, well, that's not a real thing. He doesn't write. All right, uh, there, there was a guy named Michelangelo and he was an artist, all right? So anyway, so, and he wrote to all these people and he said, you keep doing all these paintings and sculptures in all these museums and these big beautiful churches and cathedrals. And he said, and you keep drawing Jesus on a cross, Jesus on a cross, suffering, suffering, suffering. And Michelangelo wrote to him a letter. He said, listen, that was important and that was for a moment Jesus' life. The one who suffered, the veil came down on him. I get it. But that is not who Jesus is now. Jesus is risen, reigning, sovereign in all power, the one to be worshiped. That's who Jesus is now. Jesus was a first century Palestinian peasant for 33 years, 2,000 years ago, but it isn't who he is now. Read Revelation 1. He's the one with the long hair and the, 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 the fire as for eyes. Like He is holding the seven stars of the universe in his hand. He is absolutely in control of all things. That's who you sing to. That's who you worship. That's who you base your life off of. And so there's this thing where you say, now are we just supposed to focus in on the, the, the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, that's important. It's hugely important. I was reading a story the other day about a kid driving in the backseat of his car and his family's driving past the cemetery. And there was a big hole because their family member had died and there was this big, like all the dirt had been piled up because they had dug a hole. And as they drove by, the kid looked, he goes, look, dad, one got out, right? And <laughs> it's kind of true, all right? 
One did get out, his name is Jesus, right? So that's important, all right? Hugely important, base your life on it. But here's the thing that the New Testament does. It doesn't spend its time. Read the 27 books, read the letters of Paul, the 13 letters he wrote doesn't spend a lot of time defending the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what he does. He goes, okay, assuming all of that now, what does that have to do with you? See, the resurrection of Jesus is unto something. And it's unto something that you have to figure out in your life that when you understand it, you begin to say to yourself, if I revolve my heart, my soul, my body, my life, my money, my sex life, my family life, my education life around the person and the death and resurrection of Jesus, that begins to create hope in me from that place because the same spirit, Paul says, that rose Jesus from the dead is now alive in you. That's his point. And in Ephesians 2, he says, but God made you alive, rose you up and seated you together with him in the heavenlies. The three things that he did to Jesus, he does to you now. So now the question becomes, what are you going to do with that? So the whole reality of Easter two weeks later is not that you just move on with your life. It's that you reflect and you go, wait a minute, if this is true, this is a warning. And for those of you who have not figured Christianity out, you're still skeptics, you're still exploring, amazing. This is a warning to you. See, sometimes we go through life and we see so many false warnings that we become totally, like we're just like cold to it. We don't really wake up and go, I better do something with this. I uh, was on a flight back from Dubai a couple of weeks ago. I had been to Uganda and I got in a plane and we're flying and I, I'm not a, I don't love flying anyway. So I have like this system where I get in these nice movies and I watch the movies and I put my earphones in, but they're always like nice movies, like J-Lo romantic comedies from the nineties. All right, stuff that doesn't stress me out on a plane. All right, and so I'm watching La La Land. All right, and so I'm watching La La Land and they're dee 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 dee. And I'm like, okay, it's good. And I fall asleep at two o'clock in the morning, you know, over the ocean, I fall asleep. And then I wake up suddenly to the worst sound you can hear on an airplane, which was a fire alarm, all right? And I wake up, it's two in the morning, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I look at the stewardess, right? Because that's what we do, right? If she's cool, we're all cool, right? So it's like, what's she doing if she's free? And she's just walking around all nonchalant. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's giving up, all right? It's like, doesn't even matter. Want some coffee? It's a fire. You can't do anything. It's over, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, we're all dead. And so, I start reevaluating my life and I'm looking around and no one's doing anything. Everyone's just sitting there. And I realize that it's on the movie. All right, it's, it's, it's the guy, Ryan Gosling burnt something, all right, in the, in the oven. And it, well, that's a false alarm, all right? That's a false alarm in life. Now what tends to happen is, you get so many of those that go on in your life that you actually don't wake up when it's a real alarm. But I'm telling you, the reality of Jesus and the reality of the resurrection is something that you have to be confronted by. It's something that you have to deal with. If God has the power to do what Elijah just did to this kid, then there really is a God. Let this story confront you. Let it say to you, I have to answer the biggest questions. I have to answer origins, meaning, morality, destiny. I have to figure out purpose and meaning and responsibility in my life. You see so many people, they, they're totally directionless in their life. It's because they're not taking on the responsibility. They haven't dealt with the proper questions yet. And maybe that's some of you. And the reality is all of those questions, they're not just projected on you by society. They're in your soul. There's a reason you ask the questions of where you came from, where you're going, what is right, what is wrong, why do I feel like I have no purpose in my life? All of that is ingrained in you because God made you in his image and ingra ingrained in you the desire to ask those questions. I was literally, um, 
I took my four little girls to the park a week ago. That didn't sound good. Okay, it was my daughter and her three friends. It wasn't just me and four random girls at a park. All right. Uh, My 10-year-old daughter and her three friends wanted to go to the park. Okay, that's probably the better way of saying it. So I took them. All right. And... uh, and they wanted to wear rollerblades, so they all put on their rollerblades, and we went up there, and I, one of them had never worn rollerblades before, and so I'm, I'm kind of helping her along, and we're going up there, and, and they go play at the park, and then they decided to come uh, down, but as we were coming down, there was this massive hill, and it kind of goes, and gets up. all the kids kind of did their little thing, and then this one who didn't know, she started to roll, so my daughter, you know, amazing saint that she is, 10 years old, she grabbed her hand, and she's like, I'm going to help you, don't worry about it, we're in this together, and so they started to go, and then they started to get steeper, and they started to move fast and there's this massive like metal gate and they start to move toward the gate and so my daughter starts to like try to detach herself from her friend right because that's really kind of what we do we're like hey we'll journey with you this isn't looking good get the crap off me right at some point you give up and you just say you're on your own right I gotta you gotta figure this out and so this is what my daughter did she tried to let go but the girl grabbed her harder and so they're flailing like this and my daughter and So they go down together on the concrete, all chopped up, their arms and legs. I'm like, oh my gosh. So we all get together. We all start walking and and one person said, what, why'd you do that? And and the little girl said, well, I didn't want to die alone. (laughs) And at that moment, these girls, the other girl goes, I know, right? And then it was assumed, and for the next five minutes, they all talked about the fact that they didn't want to die alone. They're like, yeah, we want other people to die with us. We want, and they, all of a sudden, it was a deep metaphysical conversation about existentialism. And I'm like, what is happening right now? See, that's ingrained in your soul, bro. I never taught her that. All of these questions that you need answered, it's because you're human. You're asking the question because you have consciousness, which makes you vastly different than animals. Animals do not wonder about their place in the universe. All right, they do know I don't understand. All right, the zebra ain't asking himself why his friend just got eaten by a lion. He's just saying, don't eat me and eat this guy's fatter, whatever. It ain't, they're not asking about their place in the universe and whether they have a soul. That is what makes you human. That's the identity question. Who are we? Where are we? What's the problem? What's the solution? These four identity questions are underneath the surface of everything you think about and the way that you live your life. And the story of where if God interjects and actually raises people from the dead has to confront you. You have to deal with it. You can't just go on with your life and leave early and make, to make sure you get out of the parking lot of your nice little Sunday service and move on with your life. This confronts you in a way that it has to change you. I look at my church all the time, I said, listen, so we did 61 baptisms the day before I came here. On a Sunday, I flew here on a Sunday, 61 baptisms. Now I'm talking like real baptisms because we do it in 41 degree Pacific Ocean cold, all right? Like where, where they get like, they go down to really capture the symbolism of dying to self and ride, they die, like, and, they, and then we bring them up. None of this warm, bubbly Bayside nonsense, all right? You guys do friggin', this is easy, all right? This is a day at the park. Oh, we're bad, such sacrifice. Can you turn it up to 80? Mm, right? None of that nonsense, man. We're in the Pacific Ocean in February. That's baptism, bro. Now listen, here's the thing. I'm never coming back, all right? Good night. Uh, so, so here's the thing, though. So when we do that, and people get excited, they're excited. I mean, in Canada, 
Like in Canada, nobody likes Jesus in Canada. We are at least a generation or two further along in secularization than you. Everyone said it wouldn't work to plant a church in Canada because it's going to be nice to everybody, say sorry all the time. And the reality was, is we planted the church. People are meeting Jesus. People are getting off addictions. Their marriages are getting healed. Their teenagers are coming to Christ. And so what starts to happen is then they'd invite their friends and there's a snowball effect over the course of nine years that happens. And here's the reality. All these people come to you, 61 people. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And my church always claps and they're excited. And they're like, whoo, 61 people. And then I ask them a question. How many of those 61 people were baptized because of you? How many of your neighbors were in that water? How many of your coworkers, your family? Christianity is not an observational sport. You do not get to sit here and watch other people produce fruit. If you understand that the resurrection really happened, then your money's on the table, your time's on the table, your body's on the table, your worldview's on the table, your work life's on the table. You sacrifice everything for the sake of the mission. You sacrifice your whole life for the reality that this actually happened and you need to base your soul around it, your money around it, your body around it, your whole life around it which doesn't happen in the modern church, we tend to isolate ourselves. Now, here's the thing. Why would God ever do Easter? Why would God have ever come in one faithful, perfect individual, live a perfect life in your place, die on a cross for you instead of you and because of you and rise to give you? Why would he do this? Here's what the story tells us. The reason he did it, and I'm not meaning to sound sentimental here, just hear me out, is love. Now, what I mean by that, because I'm not a sentimental person. I've cried five times in my life. All right, and the reality is, when I say to you, love, what I mean is, don't hear that as some kind of weak, of course I'm in church, I hear love. Here's, here's Elijah laying over this kid, and there's like this emotional connection. There's this face-to-face, like I'm, there's, uh, this is, see, what would ever motivate God to come and do this? God doesn't need anything. So what would motivate him to actually do it? So, so you have John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That was the cause and effect. The cause and effect was there was this domino. God, what do you, I, I asked my church all the time on Christmas Eve. I said, what do you get the man that has everything? What do you get God? He doesn't need anything. You get him the one thing he doesn't have, us. That's why he was motivated. That was the cause and effect. There's always a domino. There's always, this leads to this leads to, remember that scene in, uh, in Good Will Hunting where he's like, why don't you want to work for the NSA? And he's like, oh, because what if they put a code on my desk and me take a shot at it? Maybe I break it. I'm happy with myself because I did my job well. But what if that code is a location of some rebel army in North Africa or the Middle East and I bomb a village and 1,500 people line up out of problem with get killed? Now they're saying, sending the Marines to secure the area. They don't care. It won't be their kid over there getting shot. It's like it wasn't them when their number got called. They were pulling a tour in the National Guard. It'd be some kid from Southie going over there taking shrapnel in the butt, come back to find out that his job got shipped to the country he just came back from because they'll work for 15 cents a day and no bathroom breaks. All right. And probably they, you know, took the liberty to hire some alcoholic skipper who likes to drink martinis and play slalom with the icebergs. Ain't too long until he hits one, spills the oil, and kills all the sea life in the North Atlantic. Now my buddy's out of a job, all right? And he's, they hike up gas prices, a little ancillary benefit, but it ain't helping my buddy at 250 a gallon. And so he's got to walk to the job interviews, and he's hungry, because every time he goes to get a bite to eat, the only blue plate special they're serving is North Atlantic Scrawd with Quake Estate. I figured, forget that. Why not just shoot my buddy? 
Give his job to a sworn enemy, hike up gas prices, club a baby seal, hit the hash pipe and join the National Guard. I could be elected president, right? That's literally, like, that's, remember that, all right? Now, uh, so I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if there's a Christian version of Good One Hunt. It wouldn't make any sense if there was, but uh, there's a domino to everything. Everything you do, every sin you do, you know that, right? It's like when you pull into a parking lot and you go a little bit over the line, what starts to happen, right? The next person's got to go a little bit over the line and the next person and all of a sudden all the parking's messed up. You don't sin in isolation within Christianity. When you sin, it affects everybody else around you. That's the reality of it. So here's, what's the correlation? Why would God ever do this? He's motivated by love. And some people in this room, this is the one thing you need to hear. Because here's what you've been, you don't really believe it. You don't really God, believe God loves you because you're a failure. You're a disaster. You're a wreck. And I agree with you. You are. You're all narcissistic, sinful, messed up people. I'm surprised you got your pants on and even got here today. You're so selfish, it's brutal. You are just depraved, born into a nick. Listen, let me, I don't know, I don't. I don't know what your kindergarten teachers told you, all right? Oh, you're special like a snowflake. It's not true, all right? Because here's the reality. My, uh, you don't even have to teach people sin. Just look at kids. My buddy's son, two weeks ago, he got his mom to drop him off at school on Wednesday morning, said, hey, mom, by the way, I was on time Monday, Tuesday. Can you come pick me up half an hour late tomorrow or today? She's like, yeah, that's fine. Half an hour late. You did good Monday, Tuesday, great. So she goes off, comes back half hour late. Uh, get, he gets in the car, goes, her girlfriend the next day says, hey, I saw Joey walking down the street about half a mile from the school all by himself. He's eight years old, okay? He's this tall. He's a little kid. Uh, and he was half a mile from school all by himself. And he had this big uh, McDonald's milkshake. And he was just drinking it as he was walking by himself down the road, all right? She's like, well, that's weird. No, I picked him up from school. Blah, blah. So she sits him down. She goes, what's this? Anyway, story is, now, this kid had to uh, plan this thing. Okay, for weeks. So here's what he did. Two weeks before, he would start stealing a dollar at a time from dad and a dollar at a time from mom. And he figured out how much it was so he could go down the street and he waits till the bell rings and then he gets out of school and immediately he walks a mile and a half, right? We're talking traffic. This is a very busy urban center, right? This ain't in the fields. He walks a mile and a half to McDonald's and orders a combo. Right, sits and orders a burger, french fries, and a big shake, sits down in the restaurant by himself and just eats it, right? And then just walks the mile and a half back, just sucking on it, all right? This kid is wicked, all right? You know how messed up that is? Like he woke up for three weeks twisting his mustache, trying to figure out how to destroy the life of his mother. That's you every day, man. You just do it in a more sophisticated way. See, here's the scandal of all this. Here's where hope begins to rise in your life when you realize that you are not the hope. The hope begins to rise when you realize that Jesus came for you, not because of you, not because you're great, not because you're funny, not because you're good looking, not because you're successful. It's because he is good. This is the scandal. When you look at the cross and you sing about the cross and you see the resurrection, all of that should offend you. It should say, look at what I had to do. I had to do this for you. So what are you gonna do? Entrust yourself to yourself? 
you have to be scandalized <clears throat> by the reality of the cross, scandalized by the reality of the resurrection, because it is grace. Jesus gives life. Elijah raises this, this mother's son, not because she was great, not because her prayers were so great, because God is good. He's the first mover. And the reality is you and I have to do more. Here's the scandal of all this. You got to do more than agree with Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and that it happened. You actually have to taste and see that it's good. There's a very scary passage in the Bible in Matthew chapter seven where a bunch of people are standing in front of Jesus and he says, you don't get into the kingdom. And they say, but we did all these great things. And he says, I never knew you. Isn't that, that's a weird phrase because you know what that says? It means you knew me. but I didn't know you. You knew me, like you came to church, you heard sermons, you did Bible studies, you prayed, but you didn't actually know me, like, no, like from like the level of the affections. You never tasted and seen that I was good. You never, you never cherished me above everything. <clears throat> you never got to a place in your life where this, this cross, this, res- this is all that mattered. This was, this was relativized everything else in your life. You know, Satan knows that Jesus rose from the dead cognitively, but it doesn't save him because he doesn't cherish it above everything. He doesn't, and see, so what we tend to do is we tend to try to solve this by doing one of two extremes. We tend to be either legalistic and we try to control God and control our life and control our outcome by the good things that we do, going to church, tithing, doing our Bible studies, making sure we read Oswald Chambers for the day. We feel good about ourselves. We've never watched a rated R movie, which is why I don't know what you're talking about with Goodwill Hunting, okay? If it is a rated R movie, it's Passion of the Christ every Easter, okay? That's the only rated R movie that gets in our home. And, and you try to control your behavior as if God is gonna go, you're such a good person, I'm so impressed. Come on in. And then others of you respond to that and you go on the other side and you don't, you're not into legalism, you're into license where you think God's just so happy that you give him any kind of attention at all. You can do whatever you want with your life. Doesn't matter about your behavior because all God's trying to do is steal your joy anyway. That's why he put fences around you. That's why he gave you restrictions because all he wants to do is take your joy, take your fun away. And so we live in these two extremes. They're right in the garden. They're right in Genesis 3, right? Adam says, hey, we're not allowed to eat of the fruit. And then the serpent comes to the woman. And what does she do? We can't eat of the fruit and we can't touch it. She added a rule. That's what these people do. Listen, my kids never add rules to the rules I give them, right? I don't tell my kids, okay, you know, my kids never go, okay, you know what? He said we could have two cupcakes. I think we should just have one, right? <laughs> Doesn't happen. Hey, I know dad said we could go to bed at 10. I think we should get to bed uh, by eight. You're looking very tired and let's be three little girls that have a good day tomorrow, all right? That ain't the conversation that's happening in my home. All right? And so, but some of you do that. You add rules like Eve did. He didn't just say, don't eat it, don't touch it. And then others of you, you do what Satan did in the garden, which is he said, you know why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree? because then you're going to know good and evil. He wants to, you know what God, you know what God wants to do in your life? He just wants to steal your joy. That's why he created all these limitations. He just wants you to be miserable. 
That's why he defines sex the way it is, and money the way it is. And he just wants to steal your joy where everybody else is having fun. So you just go do whatever you want. He's so happy that you like him. He's so happy that a few times a year you say, I like God, and you pray a prayer. He's so, he's just, oh, you're on my home. You're on my team. Hercules. It's a joke. The gospel comes in and deconstructs both these ways of life, by the way. And it says there's nothing you can do that would make God love you more. You're that loved. You're, you're way worse than you ever thought you were, and you're way more loved than you ever thought you were. And by the way, because this is true, you better understand that the things I gave you of a way of living are actually for your joy in the end. I care about your joy more than anybody. I care about your joy and your delight and your pleasure more than everybody, which is why I actually define things this way. Do not be a slave, though, to what you think would actually be good for you. So let's be scandalized by it. The reality is, some of you are here, and I talk to my church about this often, about why they wouldn't give their life to Jesus, and I tell them it's not because they're smarter than everybody else, it's because many of them are cowards. Many of you maybe showed up in your you're wondering about Christianity and you say to yourself, I'm just existentially smarter than everybody else in this room, which is why I don't believe in stories like this, stories where dead people come back from the dead. But the reality is history works against you a bit, science works against you a bit, the universe turns out is much more complex than we ever thought in the 1800s and the 1900s and the Enlightenment. And constantly, science pushes to actually be persuaded, which is why this woman, when he see, she sees her son get raised from the dead, says, now I know that your God's actually legitimate. And so the reality is it begins to persuade us to the core of our being about who he is. And sometimes it's just cowardice that actually keeps us from giving our life to Jesus. Sometimes you in these seats won't give your life to Jesus because you're afraid of what your coworkers and your friends and your neighbor and your grandmother or your brother or sister might say. And so you don't do it and you push it off and you push it off. That's just cowardice, not because you're smarter than anybody. And the story would challenge us in that. And it would say, you got to understand that you need to come to the end of yourself. The only people who really benefit from what Jesus did and actually have any hope in their life are people who are poverty of spirit enough to say, I came to the end of myself. I could not do this on my own. Every time I'm in the driver's seat, I derail my life. And so I'm going to let Jesus actually be the center of my whole life. The only people, you know, every time if somebody gets someone back in a resurrection story in the Bible, it's always a woman. Every single time. Because in that society, women were marginalized as second-class citizens. They were the only people humble enough to receive it. Some of you aren't there. I mean, some of you, it's like, think about your marriage and how you try to fix it. Some of you try to fix your marriages, and here's your strategy. Your husband's bad at communication, so I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down to the Christian bookstore. I'm going to get five books on communication. And I'm going to go back to my house. I'm going to put them on his little bedside table. He's going to see him right there, and then he's just going to, he's going to come home and be like, oh, glory, let me open up the first book. I see principle number one. Oh, she's so right about that. Number two, oh, yes, love language is very important. Oh, yes, I'm a changed man. Honey, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not doing any of that nonsense. He's going to come into the room, and he ain't going to look at those books for six months. They're going to sit there, and they're going to be like, hi, I bought these books for you. They're going to be talking to him. He's going to be like, shut up. I don't want anything to do with those books. Why? Because you as a wife's job is not to be the Holy Spirit in your husband's life. He's not going to read those books. You know the only way your marriage gets fixed? If both of you 
come to a place where you go, we're at the end of ourselves, let's go get help. Which is what you should do, by the way. I do it just, just to give my congregation license to do it. My wife and I go to counseling. I mean, it's weird, because she says, I, wa- I won. I'm like, I'm not sure that was the point of the counseling <laughs> session. Man, I killed, I won, I won. <laughs> all right, last thing, uh, and then I'll pray for us. It's a very interesting question, how was all this possible? It's very fascinating, the response of the woman in First Kings 17. Um, she says, uh, you've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. It's very interesting, she looks and she says, my sin has a consequence. So. Um, what we do as modern people is we say, uh, if trial happens in your life, if bad things happen in your life, it must be because, you know, there's no God or it must be because, because we basically go, who are we going to sue? Who, who, who's, who's at fault for the things that are wrong in my life? That's what modern people think. It's not how she thought. You see, she understood there was a debt to be paid, which was her sin. And that without that debt being paid, I mean, the debt, oh, it has to be paid. That's the way it works. Debts always have to be paid. If you come drive a car through my fence of my house, all right, either you're going to pay for the fence to be no, no, you're going to pay for the fence to be fixed, okay? And if you don't, I'll have to, or my neighbors will, or the government, somebody, everybody, they're going to have to pay for it, right? Somebody's going to have to pay. She knew there's a debt, somebody's got to pay for it. There's a sin, and my son had to die to pay for that sin. And the gospel comes out and beautifully says to her, no, listen, don't think karma. Here's the reality. Your son will not die because of your sin. My son will die because of your sin. I will give my son as a substitute for your disaster. For making, see, here's what we do. Every sin is us substituting ourselves for God. So salvation is God substituting himself for us. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Our sin gets put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness gets applied to us. That's the beauty of it. And so you and I begin to receive it, and when we actually receive it, then we become part of a family who gets God as father instead of judge. And that's the beauty of it, right? Jesus tells these beautiful stories about these widows who go and they, they constantly pray to God, can I have this, can I have this, can I have this, can I have this? And then God gives it to them and she's saying, this is the kind of father you have. That's not the way it works in my house. If my kids come to me and ask me for something and they keep asking for the same thing, I have this line that I do where I say to them, ask me again, all right? Now what that means is just, I dare you, all right? Like, like hey, come here, ask me again. And that now, my kid, hey, hey, can we go to a movie? No. Can we go to a movie? No. Ask me again. They'd be really stupid kids if they went, I think he wants us to ask him again. I'm not. (laughs) But in Christianity, you get this beautiful story of the father who goes, ask me again. Ask me. Ask me. Ask me. Father, I pray that any kind of hope that we're going to have in our life doesn't get constructed around ourselves, our own plans, our own ideas. They would be fully saturated by the reality of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, his perfect life in our place, his death on the cross, 
his resurrection, which every sermon in the book of Acts talks about the resurrection. It didn't end at the cross. He rose again in the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is now the same spirit that is on option to us to be able to defeat, defeat that sin, defeat that addiction, defeat that place in our life, defeat the stupidity and the cowardice. Wake us up. Let us be confronted by the scandal and let every hope, every point of faith, every decision we make be driven by this center stake in history that has everything to do with us and not just to do with you. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Amen.